I want to begin the sermon this morning by asking you a question. Have you ever had to confront a friend? Have you ever had to rebuke a dear friend, a brother or sister in Christ for their sin or for living a life they shouldn't live? It's difficult, isn't it? I recall some of the situations in my life when I've had to do it, and you get that sick feeling in your stomach, and and you try to avoid it at all costs, and before you go about doing it, you convince yourself, no, now's not the right time, now's not the right time. It's difficult to confront a friend. It's difficult to sit down with a friend or take a friend aside and tell them about their sin. And likewise, in the same vein, it's, it's difficult to receive rebuke from a friend. It's, it's embarrassing to have someone you trust and someone you love tell you you're wrong. And, and our pride swells up inside of us. And it can be very difficult to receive that rebuke. It can be very, very difficult to accept that rebuke because we don't like being wrong. And we have defense after defense, but oftentimes we really don't have a defense. It's difficult to rebuke a friend. It's difficult to be rebuked by friends, but it is necessary. And this is exactly what we have in our text this morning. If you would, I hope you have your Bibles open and available to you. If you would turn to Galatians chapter 2, we are going to finish the narrative section of Galatians today. We've been looking for many weeks now as Paul has defended his apostolic ministry and he has defended his divinely given gospel through his narrative story. Paul has been telling the false teachers and the Galatians alike about his story and he has been telling his story specifically to prove to them that he has a divine authority and that he has a divine gospel. And so he is going to finish his narrative today, and then the rest of the letter from here on out is going to be teaching. It's going to look like an epistle. Right now, it looks more like a book of history almost because we've just been reading his narrative. So we're going to finish this narrative that he invoked long ago in order to prove his authority and his divine calling. And what better way to establish his authority to establish his divine calling than to remind everyone that it is he who at one point in his life had to rebuke an apostle. That certainly establishes a great deal of authority. And that's what we have today. One of the most influential, famous moments in all of Paul's ministry that is found in this text. This is a text that has been discussed and even debated for thousands of years. This event where Paul opposes Peter, where Paul confronts Peter. So if you would please look with me at Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. We're going to read a short section of scripture today, but trust me, there is much to get to. If you would begin with me in verse 11, please follow along, for these are the very words of God. And before we read, I just remind you, Cephas is just another name for Peter. Uh, Cephas is Peter. Verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Well, we end there, and as you see, and we discussed in our introduction, this is a dramatic text. This is a text of confrontation and quarrels. I titled this sermon, Jerusalem vs. Antioch. And, and the reason I did that is because right now what we're seeing in this text is an important theme in the New Testament. It's an important theme in the early fledgling church. This issue of bringing the Jewish world and the Gentile world together. It, it might not seem like a big issue for us today. Many of those listening are probably living in a largely Gentile land. We don't face this kind of stuff. We have to understand the difficulty of this issue in the first century of taking this, this Jewish faith and now offering it to the Gentiles and bringing the Gentiles in. It was a difficult thing to combine the Jews and the Gentiles under one faith. And so what we have is in verse 11, it says that when Cephas came to Antioch, so here's what you have to remember geographically and historically. The Christian movement began in Jerusalem. And that's, that's very clear in the scriptures, not only historically, we see Jesus was a Jew. Jesus did almost all of his ministry work only with, to the Jewish people. Jesus died in Jerusalem. Jesus resurrected in Jerusalem. Jesus ascended in Jerusalem, in, in the region. And all of his disciples were Jewish men. And, and they went out to the Jews, right? This was a, a, the Old Testament was a Jewish religion, and then Jesus came, and it was still primarily a Jewish thing. The early church was largely Jewish. And so what happened is after Peter preached his sermon at Pentecost in Jerusalem, and thousands were saved, we suddenly had a Christian church coming together under pastors, but it was in Jerusalem, and it was mostly Jewish people. And so, at the various earliest stages of Christianity, it was still largely Jewish, and in the hub of Christianity, if you will, was in Jerusalem. That was the main church, and that's where all the apostles were. The only exception was Paul, who not long after was commissioned to go to the Gentiles. And so, as Paul went out and started preaching to the Gentiles and establishing and planting his own churches, what ended up happening is that there was a city known as Antioch, and Antioch kind of became the Gentile version of Jerusalem. Antioch was sort of the, 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 the large city where most Gentile Christians were congregated. This was a safe place for Gentile Christians. This is where Paul was primarily doing ministry from. He was the pastor and leader of this church. Antioch was kind of like the home base for Paul. So essentially what we have early on in Christian history is we have a large Jewish concentration of Christians in Jerusalem and a large Gentile concentration of, of Christians in Antioch. So Jerusalem and Antioch are kind of like the Christian hubs. And so Peter, he lived in Jerusalem. He, he, he was one of the pastors of the churches in Jerusalem. But he would, being a good pastor, take time to go down to Antioch and, and check in on the Gentiles. Check in on the Gentile Christians. And at one point in time, this is where verse 11 picks up. Remember, so last week we, we talked about Paul and how he 
visited Jerusalem for a second time. So after Paul visits Jerusalem, he goes home to Antioch. And at some point in time, this is verse 11, Peter comes to Antioch to check in on Paul and the other Gentile and the Gentiles. And Paul says in verse 11 that this time when Peter came, I opposed him to his face. Paul opposed Peter to his face. He says, because he stood condemned. Your translation might say self-condemned. The idea is that what Peter was doing was so blatantly wrong that he didn't even really need someone to point it out. He condemned himself. It was wrong on its face. Paul says in verse 11 that Peter, after Paul left Jerusalem, at some point he came by himself to Antioch. And sometime during that, Paul had to oppose him to his face. Now, why the drama? Why did Paul have to do such a thing? Well, let's look at why. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So Peter comes alone, and, and he's in this Gentile church, this Gentile city, largely with the Gentiles, and it says that he would eat with them. We need to understand that eating in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, and I would argue even in our culture today, although maybe not as much as theirs, eating is a sign of great fellowship. Eating is a sign of intimacy, and in some sense it's a sign of equality, and I, I won't labor our time to show all the different examples of this in the New Testament. But you can read through the Gospels and it's very, very clear that the Jewish people and the people of the first century saw eating a meal together as an intense sign of unity. And that's why we see the uh, communion, the Lord's Supper in the earliest centuries of the church was always in the context of a meal. It's this intense sign of unity and fellowship. This is why the Pharisees would so often get upset with Jesus, not for merely interacting with sinners. It wasn't, the Pharisees interacted with sinners. They would rebuke sinners. They would talk to sinners. They would preach their message to sinners. They didn't have a problem that Jesus was kind to sinners or that Jesus would ever cross face with the sinner. No, they would get upset because Jesus would recline at table with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the Gentiles. Jesus was willing to share a meal because they, they understood this is a sign of, of equality and intimacy here. And, are, and an established Jewish rabbi has no business eating, sharing that kind of fellowship with Gentiles, prostitutes, tax collectors, and other sinners. So by sharing a meal here, Paul is telling us that Peter was, was experiencing a deep intimacy with the Gentiles. He saw them as equals. He saw them as brothers and sisters in Christ. There was no conflict between them. Now, I would also argue, and I'll make this point later on, because I know it's not explicitly in the text at all. So I might be wrong about this, but, but hear me out. I also think there was more than just an act of fellowship and eating together going on. I also think, and I'll tell you why in a minute, I think that Peter was not just eating with the Gentiles, but he was eating Gentile food. He was eating their food. What I mean by that is, remember, the Old Testament had many what we call dietary restrictions, the dietary laws. The Jews were given a very specific code of dietary instructions, what they were allowed to eat, what they were not allowed to eat. And this remained very important for the Jews even after Christ came. We know that they were still eating what today we call kosher food. They were not eating pork. They were still completely draining the meat from their food. 
And so I, I believe that what's actually going on here is not only is Peter into having intimate fellowship with the Gentiles, but I think he's eating their food. I, I imagine Peter is spread out at table right now with, with pulled pork sandwiches and clam chowder and medium rare steak. And he's indulging and he's enjoying it. And guess what? He knows he's allowed to. Because if you read through the book of Acts, what has happened prior to this point is that Peter received an incredibly intense divine revelation from Christ. Christ visits Peter in a vision, and he tells Peter in this vision to eat food that the Old Testament calls unclean. And Peter tells Jesus, no, I would never break your law. I would never eat unclean food. And Jesus says, no, I have made all food clean. Eat. So Peter knows that he is allowed to eat Gentile food now. He knows that. The gospel has set him free to that. But in that vision, Jesus does more than just give him a new, uh, a new cookbook. Jesus also says, this was a sign, a, 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 a symbol of the fact that I have made the Gentiles clean. So not only was Peter instructed, yeah, go ahead, eat whatever you want. But more importantly than that, you need to see the Gentiles as clean. Invite them to the faith. Call them to repentance. Consider them brothers and sisters in Christ. So Peter, it, Jesus has made it very clear to Peter. Peter knows the, the, the true extent of the gospel. And the true extent of the gospel meant that all foods are now clean to him and Gentiles are not second-class citizens. Peter knows that. So he goes to Antioch and he lives consistently with that. He treats these people like brothers and sisters in the Lord and he eats their food. And all is well. But then something happens. Verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So what has happened? In the middle of all this beautiful Jew-Gentile harmony, James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church, sent more Jews. And once they got there... Peter feared them, and now that harmony, that unity was disrupted, and Peter drew back. He pulled away from the Gentiles, and he now treated them like second-class citizens. Now, there's a lot of detail in verse 12 that we're not given. For example, why did James send these men? Was it because the Jews in Jerusalem heard of Peter's Gentile-like behavior and it was offending them and he specifically sent these men to tell Peter to stop acting like a Gentile? That's possible. Or maybe he just sent these men for an entirely different reason and then once they got there, they started behaving like Jews and Peter drew away. Maybe that happened. We don't know the details to a lot of what's happening, but it doesn't matter. Here's all we need to know, that James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, sent Jews to Antioch, and once they got there, whatever reason they were sent, we don't know, but at some point when they got there, they started acting like Jews and not like Christians, and they started treating the Gentiles who were not acting like Jews as if they were second-class citizens and they were not welcome in the community until they started acting more like the Jews. So Peter begins to break the fellowship he once had and he draws back and it says why? Because he was afraid of the circumcision party. 
Now, we don't know if that's a reference to all of the Jews that were sent from James, or maybe there was a, a unique group within that group of people who, who, who pushed circumcision and separating the Gentiles until they were circumcised. Again, we don't know the details of that, but we have to tie this back together to our context, though. So what Paul is doing by telling this story is he's not only establishing his own authority, a, a kind of authority that's allowed to rebuke an apostle, but what he's doing is he is sort of rebuking the Judaizers in Galatians through this story. Because remember, the Judaizers are, are who we call the false teachers that this whole letter is written to rebuke. And Paul is drawing on an old story and essentially rebuking them through this story. So the circumcision party was essentially Judaizers. Jewish people who required the Gentiles to adopt the Jewish customary laws in order to be saved. And once they got there, as we said, Peter suddenly was fearful of them and he now, through peer pressure, is separated himself from the Gentiles and it gets worse. Peter's influence is so strong that when he started acting hypocritically, all the Jews did. So in Antioch, um, there, there would have been some Jews in that church. It would have been largely Gentile, but in the first century, we had known as what was called the diaspora. And this was after Rome conquered Israel. Uh, many Jews were dispersed throughout the nation. So there were Jews all over the, 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 the Roman Empire. And so there would have been some Jews in the Antiochian church. And so when, when, these, when these established Jewish leaders come from Jerusalem and start treating the Gentiles as lesser including Peter, now all the Jews in that church act and carry on their hypocrisy. And it gets even worse than that. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. I want you to see right now, guys, this is devastating. Do you remember who Barnabas is? He was Paul's ministry companion. He helped plant this church. Barnabas was essentially a pastor of this church. He was one of the men who decided to help Paul reach the Gentiles and bring them into the fold of God. And look at where we're at now. All the Jews within this church have turned their backs on their own church members and treated them disgracefully. And Barnabas himself, one of the church's pastors, has himself turned his back on his own sheep. And he's treating them disgracefully. And they're all doing it because of the peer pressure that Peter fell into. And Peter led them astray. And so Paul steps back and Paul analyzes this situation. And he sees the Jews are treating the Gentiles as if they are not truly in the people of God. They are not truly equal with the Jewish people until they start living like Jews. And this is the exact gospel of the Judaizers that Paul is rebuking in the book of Galatians. So Paul sees the disunity. He sees the broken fellowship. And this is how he analyzes the situation. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So how does Paul interpret this? Paul recognizes that their behavior was inconsistent with their profession. What they claimed and preached was not being consistently lived out in their life 
On the one hand, Peter, like I said, he had the revelation from Jesus in Acts. Peter knew Gentiles are equal members in the household of God. Peter knew this. Peter knew they weren't second-class citizens. He preached a true gospel. But you wouldn't know that by looking at his life. He would preach a true gospel to you, but then when you examine his life, he doesn't live that out consistently. He certainly favors the Jews. He certainly thinks the Jews are, are, are more important citizens in the kingdom of God than the Gentiles. So Paul is realizing there's a disconnect here between what we've been preaching and how we're living. We tell the Gentiles they're equal, but we do not treat them equally. So Paul re realizes that their gospel message is not consistent right now with the way they live their life. They're saying one thing but doing another. So how does he respond? In other words, think of it this way. Peter never ever denied the gospel in creed. He never denied the gospel in profession. But by his lifestyle, he functionally denied the gospel. He was rejecting the gospel through his life. So this was a serious issue for Paul. This was not just some, some, some silly mess up. This was a sin that was attacking the heart of the gospel itself. This was a sin that had the potential to ruin our gospel witness. And so how does he respond? Verse 14, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. So Paul, this takes us back to verse 11 where he says he opposed Peter to his face. Paul speaks to Peter before them all. So Paul acts immediately and he acts publicly. Paul does not take Peter off into a room and say, listen, we need to have a chat. Paul does not say, I'll wait for the moment's right. Paul immediately jumps in and he humiliates Peter in front of those many witnesses. What's interesting about this is throughout church history, this text has been debated and jostled with for a long time. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. But this is a very uncomfortable text. No matter how you slice it, it's really uncomfortable for people. For the Roman Catholics, this was a difficult text because Peter's supposed to be their infallible pope. Doesn't look like much of one right now, does he? But even for Christians, it's, it's somewhat embarrassing to say Peter, who is an infallible spokesperson on behalf of Christ, an apostle that we're all supposed to be listening to and taking his every word as being the word from God, could possibly act this way. So in history, they've tried to find different ways to reinterpret it. Well, no, because no, Peter wasn't really wrong. But then what's the problem? If you think Peter's actually in the right, now what are you doing? You're thinking Paul essentially overreacted. And now Paul's this embarrassing sinner. So no matter whose side you take, we've got an apostle embarrassing the faith. And that's difficult. And that's why you even have a minority of early church fathers who interpret this text as Paul and Peter getting together and sketching this out like a play. Because they wanted to try to save the reputation of both men. That's not what's going on here, though. Peter was wrong. Peter was acting hypocritically. And so Paul has to rebuke him in front of these many witnesses. And one of the reasons why some people have actually taken Peter's side in all of this, and they think Paul overreacted, is because Paul doesn't really go by the standard guidelines we're given for church discipline in Matthew 18. 
He certainly knows about them because he's going to reference them at the end of this book in chapter 6. You know, Jesus tells us in, in, in church uh, discipline that the first step of church discipline is you meet with someone who has sinned against you privately. And if they don't repent, then you bring some witnesses. And if they don't repent, then you bring them before the elders and then the church. You gradually move up to a public rebuke. But Paul seems to start with a public rebuke. Isn't he breaking Jesus' rule? Well, I would argue he's not. And that this was highly appropriate. First and foremost, I think it's important for us to see the church discipline as important objective guidelines. But they do not encompass all sins. Because not only do we have this example, but Paul, who also wrote 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6, did the same thing with a sinner there. In other words, let me just summarize it this way. We need to understand church discipline has a set rules that we're supposed to follow, but there are some sins that are so public and so severe, they must be dealt with publicly. And this is why I reject in our day and age online Whenever a Christian criticizes a, a, an, an online personality, Christians will say, well, you can't criticize them until you've messaged them privately. No, some sins are so public and the publicity of this sin is so severe, they must be dealt with publicly and immediately. In other words, Paul is not just addressing a sinner who has sinned against him, as Jesus talks about with church discipline. Paul is addressing someone who is sinning against many people publicly, and so he deals with it in front of these many people publicly. And we also need to understand that because Paul is not merely addressing Peter, he's addressing all of the Jews who have acted hypocritically through Peter. What's he supposed to do? Take every single Jew that came to Antioch and take them into a room privately one by one? Like there's a line outside the door, next, next, next. No, we have a mass gathering of sinful people acting sinfully. And so Paul responds appropriately by rebuking all of them publicly. He says in verse 14 that he said to Peter before them all, he wanted everyone to hear this. Because he was rebuking all of them. And before we look at what he says, I just want to take us back to what I said in our introduction. This takes guts, doesn't it? I mean, I, I don't want us to, to lose the, the difficulty of this and the intensity and the drama of the situation. I cannot imagine this was easy for Paul to do. It's, it's, it's hard for any one of us to rebuke a friend. That's always hard. But there's more to this than just rebuking a friend. He's also rebuking an apostle. What Paul did here had the potential to destroy the Christian church. You see that, right? If, if Peter, if Paul responds inappropriately or if Peter responds inappropriately, we now have actually widened the chasm between the Jews and Gentiles and we've now actually put a wedge between the apostles. The apostles don't like each other, the Jews and the Gentiles don't like each other and the Christian movement, which has only just begun, is dead. There was a lot on the line, but Paul knew there's more on the line if I let this go. Because what was on the line for Paul? The truth of the gospel. Paul cared more about the truth of the gospel than he did about having friends. He cared more about the truth of the gospel than he did about his own comfort. 
He cared more about these poor Gentile brothers and sisters who feel ashamed and embarrassed and belittled. He cared more about them. He cared more about his sheep than his own reputation. I want us to fall in love with the pastoral heart of Paul here. Paul has a pastor's heart. What does Paul care about right now? He cares about the gospel and he cares about his people. More than his friends, more than his feelings, more than his reputation. He sticks up for his church. And how does he do so? How does he rebuke Peter and all of the hypocrites in the church? Well, he asks Peter this rhetorical question. And it's really good. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? By the way, this, the, the very last part of our section here, live like Jews, that's expressed by one word in the Greek, and it's a verb. And that's where we get our phrase Judaizers. That's why we call the false teachers in Galatia Judaizers. Because it's the word there is, he, he, Paul essentially says, how can you force the Gentiles to Judaize? So this, the word Judaizer means someone who would force Gentiles to live like a Jew, to be Jewish, to say, you can't be saved until you become Jewish, to live like a Jew. That's a Judaizer. So Peter and the, other have, and the others have become Judaizers, and they have forced the Gentiles to live like Jews. But Paul recognizes for all of them, but especially for Peter, this is hip- hypocritical. Why? Because when Peter showed up to Antioch, he wasn't forcing them to live like Jews, but on the contrary, he was living like a Gentile. And that's why I'd go back. That's why I think there was more when Paul says that they were eating together. I think there was more than just fellowship. I think Paul was eating their food. And then once the Jews showed up, Paul rebuked them for eating that food. Or forgive me, Peter. I said Paul, Peter. That's why I think that because, in other words, there's more here than Paul just eating with the Gentiles. He was, or I keep saying Paul, forgive me. There's more here than Peter eating with the Gentiles. Peter was living like them. He was acting like them. And then once the men from James showed up, he was no longer acting like them. He was acting like a Gentile. And so Paul says, here's the hypocrisy. You think it's okay for you to act like a Gentile, but you won't let the Gentiles act like Gentiles. Isn't that a double standard? The Gentiles have to act like Jews, but the Jews, they can act like Gentiles. Why? He exposes the hypocrisy that Peter tells the Gentiles, you must behave like Jews. But by the way, when it's convenient for me, I'm going to behave like a Gentile, not like a Jew. It's a double standard. It's hypocritical, and it's destroying the gospel witness. And by the way, we, on all accounts, Paul doesn't tell us explicitly how Peter responds. But we have no reason to re- he responded anything other than a godly, righteous man. Because throughout the book of Acts, we see no broken fellowship between Peter and Paul. And in Peter's own testimony, remember we read last week, Peter, who wrote 2 Peter a long time after this, refers to Paul as a dear brother, a holy apostle, and a scripture writer. So we have no reason to believe that Peter responded any way other than contrition and repentance. He responded like a godly man. He responded the way all of us need to respond to appropriate rebuke. Paul calls Peter out for his hypocrisy, and in so doing, he rebuked all of the hypocritical Jews. And in so doing that, by retelling the story, he has now rebuked 
the Judaizers. Because what he has done is he has cut directly to the heart of the issue here. The heart of the issue for the Judaizers is simply this. They have an anti-Gentile spirit. That's the bottom line. These are a people who are just simply not willing to allow the Gentiles to be equal members in the household of God. They don't like the Gentiles. It's that simple. You know, we we see a lot in church history this idea of anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism is real, and it's wicked, and it's evil, and it's awful. Don't hear me justifying anti-Semitism in any way. It is sinful and racist. But I want us to also notice, though, that in the New Testament, in the earliest phases of the church... The issue was actually the exact opposite. It wasn't anti-Semitism. Rather, the issue they had to overcome was being against the Gentiles. It was animosity for the Gentiles. It was animosity for these people that the Old Testament for thousands of years considered unclean sinners. And now all of a sudden, I'm just supposed to embrace them in the family of God. And they don't have to even become Jewish. They don't even have to follow Moses' law. We've been following Moses' law for so long, and now these Gentiles just get to jump into our religion, jump into our faith, and they don't even have to have anything to do with Moses. This is an anti-Gentile spirit that Paul is rebuking here. And so that leads us to, as we take this narrative and conduce it to one heart, a thesis, a main idea, I think it's this. We need to see this. This is crucial. The gospel unites. It does not divide. Let me say that again. The gospel unites. It does not divide. The end goal of the gospel is unity, not division. You see, the Judaizers were creating a gospel that just fed and bred unity or disunity. They refused to see the Gentiles as equal members in the household of God unless they became not Gentile. But that was not the purpose of the gospel. The purpose of the gospel was not to maintain first and second class citizens within the kingdom of God. It was to, at the foot of the cross, unite us all together. At the foot of the cross, we are all equals. The gospel brings unity, not division. The gospel unites, it does not divide. And here's something I want us to understand. Beginning next week and throughout the rest of this letter, we're going to talk about the foundation of that unity. The reason Jews and Gentiles can have unity in the gospel, and I would extend that out to all differences. The reason blacks and whites, Asians and Hispanics, 21st century, 1st century, we can create any kind of division we want. The reason the gospel obliterates those divisions, we're going to begin discussing next week. The foundation of that unity We will begin as we discuss justification next week. But what we need to understand here is that the gospel was to bring Jew and Gentile together in complete unity. Unity is such an important fruit of the gospel. And this is why the Lord's Supper, communion, is so important. Because when you read about the Lord's Supper, one of the heart purposes, one of the, the foundational purposes of doing the Lord's Supper is to see, remember, and establish the unity of the local church. This is why Paul tells the first Corinthians that if you're not in unity, if your church is factious and broken and divided, you shouldn't even do it. It makes no sense for a, 
for, a, for a church without unity, with divisions and factions, to partake at the table and say, behold our unity. The gospel is obsessed with creating unity among the groups of men in the world, bringing us together, uniting us to God and to one another. As a matter of fact, keep your marker here and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, this is how Paul says it very clearly in Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, talking about the Gentiles, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. There was a natural hostility created by the Old Testament law. There was this metaphoric and a physical. In the temple, it was a physical. But there was also this metaphorical wall that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. And that wall, Paul here is the metaphor of the commandments and the ordinances. They were actually commandments in place that kept the Jews and the Gentiles separate. And Paul says that how are the Gentiles brought near to Christ? Is it by obeying the ordinances? No, Christ Jesus' death abolished the ordinances. The Judaizers want the Gentiles to obey the laws and become Jews and then become saved. When Paul says, no, Christ Jesus abolished the law so that you can just be saved. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments so that the two can become one. We should not even think of ourselves as Jewish Christians and, and Gentile Christians, as black Christians and white Christians and Asian Christians. You are just Christian. That's all you are. God has brought us together and made a new man, a new creature out of the two. The two have come together to make one unified body. He continues, verse 16, and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. You see, Jews and Gentiles needed the same gospel. They needed the same Savior. Verse 18, for through one, him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. No longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Isn't that beautiful? That's what the gospel does. 
It brings Jews and Gentiles together. It does not bring Gentiles to become Jews and then become part of the people of God. It obliterates that separation and makes both of them equal. That's why when we come to the communion table, all of our distinctions need to go away. Rich, poor, doesn't matter. Male, female, doesn't matter. Educated, uneducated, doesn't matter. Skin color, doesn't matter. We are all one in Christ. That is the message that Paul wanted the Judaizers to understand, and it is the message he very painfully taught to Peter and the other hypocritical Jews. Let me just finish very briefly. I'll make these very quick. I I want us also to see there's a lot of important life applications we get through this text in Galatians. So let me just conclude really briefly with four important principles that you can take and apply to your life right now. The first one is this. We need to beware of tradition. This is something else we learn from this text. We need to beware of tradition. What does that mean? Everyone comes to the Bible with some kind of tradition. No, no one comes to the Bible in objectively neutral blank slate. Everyone comes with tradition. That's unavoidable. But our traditions can be checked. And we need to make sure that we are constantly checking our traditions because tradition can be the greatest lens that we put on our eyes and read the scriptures through and end up distorting what the scriptures actually say. This is what was happening to the Jews. They had a certain tradition. They had these biblical, religious, ceremonial traditions that were so important to them, they distorted the gospel. They couldn't let go of their traditions. We have to be mindful of that. I would just remind us, especially in our church here, we are part of what we call the Reformed tradition. We are a Reformed church. And I think Reformed people need to be very, very careful when they read Scripture. It can become very easy to simply believe what everyone in the Reformed community is saying. I I can't tell you how many times in my earlier years I would passionately fight for things that I never actually saw in Scripture. I just know that Paul Washer said it a million times, so I believed it. But folks, Paul Washer is not our standard of truth. Ligonier is not our standard of truth. Calvin is not our standard of truth. And we can believe something because we live in this Reformed tradition and it sounds so good and all of our Reformed heroes say it and teach it. But you have to ask yourself, okay, I I get that Owen taught this. I, I get that Edwards taught this. I get that Spurgeon taught this and that makes it important. But do I actually see it in the text? The Reformed tradition can blind you just as any other tradition can blind someone. You need to check your traditions at the door when you open up your Bible. Another thing we need to see is we need to be remember to fear God. Fear God, not man. You need to have a terrifying fear of God before everything you do. Almost all of our sin can ultimately be boiled down to you feared man rather than God. That's what happened to Peter, right? Why did Peter act hypocritically? Look at the very end of verse 12. He did all this fearing the circumcision party. Peter was more afraid of men than he was of God. And a lot of our sin can be boiled down to that, can it not? This is why Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You should do things out of fear. Fear should dictate your actions. But not fear of men. 
Not fear of what men can do or what men will say. Fear God. God can do far more than they can. Fear God, not men. Beware of tradition. Fear God, not men. Number three, church discipline is helpful. It's easy to think of church discipline as this mean, uh, judgmental thing, right? This idea that if someone repents, we're going to call, or forgive me, if someone sins, we're going to call them out on it. And if they don't repent, we're going to kick them out of church. That sounds so harsh, doesn't it? But don't you see how helpful it is? Paul established the unity of the church because of church discipline. The church was better off because Paul was willing to tell a brother he was in sin and the brother was willing to accept that and repent of it. Church discipline is helpful. It's a gift. It's grace. It's not mean. It's not judgmental. It's gracious. It's a gracious gift from God that keeps us in check. In other words, let me put it this way. If Peter needed someone to tell him he was wrong and correct him, I promise you do too. And I promise I do too. If even the Apostle Peter needed someone and people in his life to say, whoa, 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 brother, this is wrong. You need to stop. If even Peter needed that, I promise you, you and I need it. Peter himself was not even prone. Was, was, was not, not prone, if you will, to fall into sin grievously and habitually. And so we need brothers and sisters in our lives who will, like Paul, talk to us man to man, woman to woman, face to face, and help us repent. Church discipline is helpful. It's a gift. It's not judgmental. And let me just say this last point. Beware of tradition. Fear God, not men. Church discipline is helpful. And here's the last one. Hypocrisy harms the gospel. All sin affects our gospel witness, but perhaps hypocrisy affects it more than any other. This this idea that I can call people I can tell sinners, you must come and believe this religion and live this way when I don't even live that way. That will ruin the gospel message. That's why Paul said that Peter's hypocrisy was threatening the truth of the gospel. That's why in Romans chapter 2, Paul tells the Jews, you who push the law onto the Gentiles but do not follow it, you you make the Gentiles mock our God. We need to remember it is so important that we live consistently with what we preach. Our lives need to come into conformity with the gospel. We cannot call people to believe and behave in ways we're not willing to believe and behave. We need to be consistent in our message. And that's why I'll end this sermon with this. You don't have to turn there, but you... You can if you would like. This is from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. This, this is the ending of our sermon here. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let your manner of life be consistent with the gospel so that we can all be unified together side by side in equal standing fighting for the truth of the gospel.